I am incredibly delighted to be opening this public lecture after a very long day of intense uh, debate and information, but this is particularly um, absolutely exciting. And I say it's exciting because we have three amazing speakers to look forward to. When you hear what they've been doing, obviously you'll know some of them in great detail, it's very exciting. I should say I am the incoming... Uh, Director of the Atlantic Fellows Programme, which I am absolutely really, really delighted to be running because it means we are recruiting activists from around the world to both come to London but also to be non-residential and to do uh, research in different places as part of the Atlantic Fellows Programme, which has been funded by the Atlantic uh, Philanthropic Organisation Institute. Um, and that's who's been supporting all this. There's a lot of our very new Atlantic Fellows in the audience, and I'd be very pleased if they would like to stand up so we can say a special welcome to them. So, really, really warm welcome to the LSE. And so, the running order for this session is going to be speakers have been asked to speak for 10 minutes each, and then we'll have general questions, and then we'll open out to the audience. You should not need um, any introduction for some of our speakers, but I will do a very brief one. So, first of all, G. Kim from the Narrative Institute in New York. G has been doing amazing work mobilising different groups of people across the world with the use of narrative, agenda setting, building frames and intervening in debates. He's followed by Katie Wright, if you remember the brilliant Oxfam campaign which was translated eventually into uh, for the many, not the few, but the, remember the buses and the aeroplanes in terms of inequality? Katie was part of the team that was responsible for those brilliant Oxfam adverts that have been used at Davos and I would argue have set the agenda and have managed to intervene in the debate on inequality. Really important. And then last but not least, Amatya Sen, who has been fighting against inequality for an incredible amount of time. Fighting so hard that he actually won a Nobel Prize for it and continues to do so. He's not resting at all. So I'm absolutely delighted to welcome these three people who have already had a very significant impact on how we speak, understand and imagine inequality. It's a delight to be here, so please welcome them. So, hi everyone, I'm G. Kim. Um, The title of the session is Changing the Terms of the Debate. And I began by wondering, what does it even mean to change the terms of the debate? And where would we even begin to actually take on this uh, huge task? And I think we start by analyzing what the existing terms of the discourse are. What are the boundaries of what's plausible in the current conversation? what gets to be defined as realistic and what is far-fetched. And given the current academic setting, I will take some liberties to nerd out a little bit 
Uh, and some of us call this a society's Overton window, where, th- where I- certain ideas get to be called plausible and others implausible or utopian. So what would it take to shift a society's Overton window? What are the dominant metaphors, the stories, and the existing narratives when bundled together constitute what we as a society consider a common sense? So we created the narrative initiative to support change leaders to think through exactly these types of questions. So the question that we begin with is, what is narrative change? Which uh, very quickly begs the question of, what is narrative? And while the phrase narrative seems to be all the rage these days and can be used to uh, indicate anything really, story, uh, frames, metaphors, beans, uh, airplanes, um, it's really hard to find a shared definition. It's quite elusive. So we spent the first half of this year interviewing 100 stakeholders from communications experts and brain scientists to filmmakers and movement organizers to get some clarity and heard lots of ideas. We heard that narrative change is about mental frameworks and schemas, something that some of the earlier speakers touched on. Some said it's the stories that society tell them, societies tell themselves to generate meaning. Uh, some just bluntly said that it's ideology. Uh, and if I'm being completely honest, uh, in the U.S., we use words like worldview because ideology is much less in fashion in the States. So it's a little bit refreshing to be here where I can just say the word. Um, <laughs> And we thought we were getting somewhere uh, after talking to these 100 people. And then right at the end of the process, one of the interviewees said, narrative is everywhere and it's nowhere. And that was my Samuel Beckett moment. (laughs) Um, I can't go on. (laughs) And I must go on. Um, So (laughs) instead of simple Wikipedia entries, I like to use the metaphor of the ocean to illustrate what narrative change is. So... Consider yourself floating on the surface of a stormy ocean, constantly tossed around in rough waters. Especially in the current moment and this political environment, the waves are even more unpredictable. We spend decades in the U.S. trying to create pathways to citizenship for immigrants. And then Donald Trump is elected and suddenly a Muslim ban appears. Uh, Or a country, hypothetically, uh, unexpectedly leaves the European Union and then less than a year later strips the Conservative Party of their mandate to lead a Brexit. Often we resist and fight waves, and sometimes we ride them. And the work of communications and messaging is critical to navigating these choppy waters. But communications and messaging tends on the large part to be reactive, short-term, address the kind of surface-level waves that we face, uh, and focuses on behavior change. Like, for instance, and in my previous work, working on political participation, we did communications on testing particular ways of talking about immigration, literally to shift suburban single women aged between 35 and 45 in the suburbs of Philadelphia in a certain way around an upcoming election. So that's the kind of narrowness and specificity that often communications and messaging lands in. In order for communications and messaging to actually change the terms of the debate, the norms that that define the boundaries of discourse and Overton window, it has to be informed by narrative change. Because the tumultuous waves in the ocean don't appear spontaneously. They are generated by deep currents that are often invisible. Those deep currents, uh, in combination, can generate very powerful waves. 
And addressing the deep currents is a long-term endeavor that focuses on the motivations and norms that drive behavior. And I welcome a follow-up question on the difference between shifting norms and motivation versus shifting behavior, but I'll, I'll leave that aside for now. So let me give you a concrete example of what this looks like. In the U.S., it's very difficult to advocate for a more robust social welfare state, like the ones enjoyed in Northern Europe, uh, exactly at the moment that the U.S. desperately needs the government to play a stronger role to address problems like poverty, or dare I say, inequality. And there are many surface waves that are manifestations of this problem, like minimum wage, paid sick days, childcare supports. But two of the strongest deep currents under these waves are a combination of systemic racism and anti-government bias. And these things are not an accident. So this is a chart that shows how the face of poverty changes and Americans become less sympathetic. The top line is the percentage of black faces used to depict poverty in the mainstream media over the last 70 years. And the bottom line indicates the actual rates of black poverty rates as part of the full population. And what you see is that essentially sometime in the 60s and 70s, suddenly poverty becomes racialized in the U.S. And it is exactly at that time that the assault on the welfare state begins by using race to essentially undermine credibility and trust in government and to say government does not serve all, it serves certain people, and it's not in your interest. So when we're trying to address poverty in the U.S. without addressing race and the role of government, we're doomed to always fight waves at the surface of the ocean without shifting the currents that actually generate them. I believe that ignoring the deep underlying, the deep narratives is akin to the plight of Sisyphus. Like Sisyphus, we who care about social change and policy advocacy often push boulders up the hill without wondering, why is this hill so steep? How did it get this way? Well, I think as the last slide around race and poverty shows, the hill is actually a collection of rocks that have been carefully placed over many decades. Narrative change is not, pushing, is not about pushing boulders up a hill. It's about changing the slant of the hill itself, shifting the terrain. Let me close with one other concrete example of what narrative change work might look like, a, a note of optimism. In the U.S., there's a, been a decade-long decades -long effort to de decriminalize marijuana. And like marriage equality, a strategy was created to initially legalize medical marijuana state by state. And it started in places that were more likely to approve uh, essentially bills that decriminalize medical marijuana in the West, Oregon, Washington, California, Colorado. But when these bills started moving forward, what folks found is that local TV and newspapers would cover these initiatives to decriminalize with very stereotypical images of either black people, young black kids, or hippies, essentially. And a number of the advocates said, we have to address race. This is really at the core of what we're trying to get to. But this was a debate within the, uh, within the criminal justice community, and others said, don't touch race. It's a third rail. We don't have time to actually unwind this deep current. Let's just pass this medical marijuana bill, and we'll worry about the rest later. Let's just win in the short term and figure out the rest later. 
Fortunately, a number of organizations like the Drug Policy Alliance and its allies had the foresight to say that we're not doing this work just for medical marijuana. We think that medical marijuana is actually the way to get to legalizing recreational use and ultimately is a way to addressing the prison system itself and its disproportionate impact on black and brown communities. And in order to get there, you have to address the deep currents that block progress like the racialization of drug use and by association criminality. So the Drug, po the drug Policy Alliance started calling station managers and local um, editors at newspapers because they said it's not possible that they're all racist or have racial bias. And when they started talking to station managers, what they discovered is that station managers at these small towns of news outlets said, well, we would love to not use these stereotypical images, but when you do a Google search for marijuana use, this is all you get. So what did the Drug Policy Alliance do? Well, it hired someone to create a stock photo service to show alternative uses and images around mar marijuana use. So instead of black kids with dreadlocks, now they have a stock photo service that shows marijuana use being... <laughs> And literally, this is from this, the photo service. Uh, a nice white lady sporting a yellow cardigan on her front porch, enjoying her evening. Uh, and today, from this work and a number of other factors, we're slowly beginning to see the narrative of this uh, critical problem in society start to shift. Thank you. I'm, uh, I'm Katie Wright, I'm from Oxfam. I'm absolutely delighted to be here today. Um, so when one starts a narrative, when one tells a tale, I think the first thing you do need to do is uh, set the stage. So I'm going to set the scene to you. You are all now at the World Economic Forum in Davos. Sit up a little bit straighter, please, you. <laughs> Make an effort. It's Switzerland. It's a remote mountainside. Snow is everywhere. Elites like you are flying in on their private jets. Champagne is flowing, and you are here to discuss improving the state of the world. Not getting there, just slowly improving it. And into this walks Oxfam International's Executive Director, Winnie Bianima, a woman from Uganda. She's in full African power dress with a coat. She's clutching the one free ticket that Oxfam gets, and she's there to hold a big mirror up to the elites who are there. Because in 2014, in she came with Oxfam's research that just 85 people had the same wealth as the poorest half of the planet, 3.5 billion people as it was then. These individuals we imagined could fit in a double-decker bus. In 2016, we did the same research, and although the data is different data sets, so not comparable uh, quite over time, that number had become 62 people. And then last year in January, we went with the news that eight people, all of them men, were needed to equal the wealth of the poorest half of the planet. And in terms of transport options, we were down to a golf buggy. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, year on year, this story is hitting headlines around the world in nearly 100 countries. It's the metaphors or it's the, uh, the, the illustration of choice reached for by Christine Lagarde, Barack Obama, the Chinese President Xi Jinping. 
And it's because most people in the world have no idea how unequal the world is that when talking about narratives and inequality, one of the most powerful things you can do is just state how much inequality, particularly in terms of wealth, we have in the world today. And this powerful message is is needed. Oxfam's campaigning on inequality because this extreme and growing inequality is making it harder to end poverty. But we also care about it because it's affecting politics, not just because of the amount of money put into politics, but because of the polarised societies that it's creating. It's leading to racism, xenophobia, rising anger, and is increasingly recognised as a threat to durable and sustainable economic growth. But recognising an issue is not the same as doing anything about it. So now what? And to be quite honest with you, the last three years as a campaigner in Oxfam has been an exercise in saying, why is this working? What can we learn from it? But also, what are its limitations in terms of actually pushing change? Because I say, as I say, we're working on a global campaign to end inequality. But just like the wry observations made in the US during the world on terror, we have to ask, how does actually one campaign against an abstract noun? In fact, looking at our audience research, you can see that there are quite a few issues that people would be a lot happier to campaign on before you get to higher-order concepts like even poverty or inequality. So one of the things that you might do, and in fact we did do, is put aside that abstract concept altogether. We know as campaigners that what works is specifics, villains, tangible things that people could see changing. And what specific thing embodies inequality better in today's world than the tax haven? the secretive, cynical jurisdictions that contribute little to the world's economics and, 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 and social welfare other than a greater return to capital. One estimate from Gabriel Zuckman is that $7.6 trillion is stashed by wealthy elites in tax havens around the world. And as a campaigner, they also happen to come with some excellent imagery. They're like Davos with palm trees. It's all elites and luxury. It, 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 It works very well, and like many structures there to benefit the richest, they also do incredible harm to the poorest as well. But what if it is actually inequality that you want people to care about? What if you want to change the terms of the debate and you don't want to go around it, you want to take it head on? And then you have to understand how people think about inequality and what values and narratives are holding them back from wanting to address it. So the first thing, as I said, is do not assume knowledge. Most people, even their own country, have very little idea how much inequality exists in society. Usually they are vastly underestimating it. They also have very little concept about where they are in the distribution, mostly putting themselves towards the middle, even when they're exceedingly wealthy. When people do know the truth, they want less inequality. But these perceptions have real impacts on their appetites to supporting action to tackle inequality. And the other thing we've come up against as a campaigning organisation is that a strong sense that people think inequality is inevitable. And I think this is reinforced by narratives put forward by our politicians that inequality is down to global forces, almost of nature, of technology, of globalisation, and also the sense that you can't have the benefits of capitalism, any of them, even supermarkets, without accepting some level of inequality. And we're seeing this come through in in lower- and middle-income countries in particular. Secondly, going back to audience research that we've done, as you can see in countries in the global north and south, 
Most people are a bit resistant to redistribution as the obvious answer to inequality because they do still think that the overriding reason you're rich or poor is your work ethic and your ability, even though in many countries that's decreasingly true. And then a further further observation is sort of best told anecdotally by a colleague of mine who was travelling in a a bus through Mexico, and it was when the Mexican Carlos Slim was announced on the Forbes list as the richest man in the world. Now, this Mexican billionaire owes the vast majority of his fortune to an almost complete monopoly over the telecom sector in, in, in Mexico. This is a monopoly that is having a significant negative effect on Mexico's economy and almost certainly making every one of those passengers pay more for their mobile phones than they should do. And despite this, the news was met with jubilant applause and celebration for the rest of the cross-country journey. So there's something in that. He may be a monopolistic oligarch, but he's our monopolistic oligarch. So how to respond to these insights? So education is key, but you have to meet people where they are as well. You have to be changing hearts as well as minds. So for instance, go with that insight that people think they're towards the middle of the redistribution. Talk about the 1%. No one thinks they're in it. And you remember that Jeremy Corbyn did this pretty well in the last few months and weeks in the run-up to the election campaign, saying again and again that under Labour, 95% of people will pay no more tax. Now, most people think they're in the 95% and most of the people they know are in the 95%. And lots of Londoners might have a a, a wake-up call about that. Turning to the education approach, this is also something we're putting a a, a lot of effort on. Here on the right, you have an inequality calculator that Oxfam in Latin America has run out across all its countries there where you can find out where you are in the distribution and how unequal your country is. And due to launch in a few weeks' time is a major contribution from Oxfam. For the first time, a global index of 150 countries ranked, not by how unequal they are, but by the policy commitments of their governments to tackling inequality. And this is really aimed to puncture that idea that inequality is inevitable, that governments don't have a choice in how they do it. And it shows the real range of responses from real redistribution and strong labour policies to essentially tax cuts for the rich. But the last thing that I want to talk about is, in relation to campaigning on inequality, is the lack of a clear alternative vision. So we know what we're against, but anyone who tell you anything about framing is say, will tell you that if you keep talking about what you don't want, you just reinforce that image. So what are we, what are we for? What's the vision we want? And what narratives will help people believe that it's possible? And our essential uh, analysis is that both the primacy of economics in policymaking and the very narrow, orthodox, if you like, neoliberal approach to that economics is a problem to this. And we need to overcome the way that the economy is discussed in public policy and media because just like the maxim that history belongs to the victors, so economics tends to belong to the winners. Think about the way the economy is discussed in media and the ways people will have heard it discussed, even in an election campaign like the one we had. The economy is healthy or unhealthy, it's sick or it's weak, it needs care as an entity over and above the very people that that make it up or it's supposed to work for. Where we do ask what the economy is for, it seems that the answer is just to deliver GDP growth, onwards and forever, no matter who captures from that growth and who's missed out. And the upshot of this being is that getting an economy that actually works for most people is seen as a naive nice-to-have, whilst keeping the overall economy healthy is somehow the main prize, which is particularly convenient for those at the top, I would say. 
So Oxfam is working alongside many, many others on a similar mission with community groups uh, around the world and with great debt, obviously, to the insights of economists such as Professor Sen to recast some of the popular ways we think and talk about economics. And we talk here and in other places about a human economy, an economy that explicitly sets out to deliver socially just outcomes for everyone and protect the planet, rather than simply assuming that these will be the magic outcome of market forces. And essentially it's about putting the needs of humanity and the planet on which we fundamentally rely first. And as these our first attempt of this in graphic form that we put out in January serves to show that these are less important than the human outcomes that are fundamentally what we're looking for. So I think the last thing to say is simply that we are at the start of a long journey. Narrative change takes time. We've probably got more questions than answers on how to do it and we're trying to be as experimental as possible. But there is an urgent need to talk about inequality. And people from all sides of politics see this. Inequality is fundamentally driving a lot of the communications choices from both Trump and Bernie Sanders, from both Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn. And whoever gets this right, arguably, is going to shape the debate for the next decades. Thank you. I'm afraid I'm going to I'm going to disappoint you because I don't have any slide. Um, so changing the terms of the debate. Now, one question to ask: uh, um, Who is doing the changing? Uh, I think that's a very crucial question to ask right now. Um, I think some of us. I mean, I was very pleased when. Bev very kindly, Beverly very kindly said they've been fighting inequality for a long time. Living long helps that. (laughs) (laughs) That's the most important reason for being able to do it. Um, But um, part of the debate has been about changing the terms in the sense not about inequality only of income, but about all the kind of things we have been discussing in this conference and um, in the uh, um, uh, you know about education, healthcare, um, social security, and basically human freedom. Now that's the side when we are trying to clarify the debate. But there's another side. That is, if you if you are going to resist the big call that comes from inequality uh, combatants. The way to deal with it best is to change the terms of the debate. And that, in fact, I would say, is exactly what we are seeing in the United States, the United Kingdom, in India, in Bangladesh, in lots of countries. Um, and the way to understand is this, and I would go a bit further than I think, um, I think Katie said, that once you understand it, truly you're against inequality. I would argue that uh, it's almost like what Chomsky says about ability to um, human beings being born with the ability to to understand syntax, that there is a general revulsion of inequality without when there is no reason given. We have to say why. Because somehow there is a presumption. And you know, whether that had I'm not going to go into it, whether it had some genetic advantage in making us survive better or not, 
whatever reason, I think even from the children, if you see Fierre and all those work, there is a dislike of inequality until you hear an, a plausible explanation. So I think what you have to do is to change that if you don't want to, uh, people to battle about inequalities or things that really matter, uh, like health education and so on, and then to discuss things about inequalities that do not really very much matter, that you cannot enter into your favorite coal mines anymore because the nature of the industries have changed, or that the Mexicans are hanging around in the United States so that they, that they have advantages not only in their country, but they have come here, where we Americans are stuck here. I think in many ways the entire uh, debate that was surrounding the Trump uh, episode, which is still going on, uh, as well as I would say uh, the, uh, even the issue of Brexit, because in some ways the, it was very easy to find out, you know, look at those folds and... Uh, uh, Hungarian, whoever they are, hanging around here, uh, whereas um, the real debates could well have been on really important issues, which the Brexiteers typically didn't um, particularly to uh, pursue. I think it becomes, I mean, I can come back to that, and maybe in discussion time we would. My experience is that uh, no matter whether you want to discuss Brexit or not, in any meeting you address, you do address it. <laughs> so we will. Uh, in India, this had happened again and again. I mean, of course, on one side, uh, the government wanted to say we are having a fast rate of economic growth, and then the others point out that not many people, uh, not um, uh, every section of the society is getting it. And indeed, then you look at education, healthcare, and so on. India probably has the least organized healthcare, uh, more of a mess than, than anywhere else that at least I am aware of. Uh, education system, pretty awful. Uh, now they have managed to get people to go to schools, but what is offered to, uh, to these 260 million potential school goers is extraordinary for. At that time, to concentrate your attention in protecting the cows is a wonderful thing to do for those who don't want to change the school system and, and, and health care. Because then you concentrate people and you go around, there are people going around with sticks trying to find bee feeders and beat them up. And that, of course, immediately then there's a debate around it. It's a good thing. If there didn't the Hindus in the Vedas eat beef, uh, so then you get onto a completely different debate. And that's fine too, because you're discussing something else, not education, healthcare, and, and the other thing. Something like that happened even earlier. It's not the first time, and not just the present government. I think previous governments have done it. And we have a, had a dramatic thing, of course, at the time of independence, uh, a country where uh, Hindu-Muslim rights were extraordinarily rare. And, uh, you have to go back in history, even at the time of what is the, in England is called the Mutiny, uh, 1857. The mutineers from different communities, different native states, different groups, different parts of the army, uh, all agreed uh, on having the Mughal emperor as the emperor of India. 
there was not dispute on that. Didn't say he is a Muslim, nothing can do. That was a legitimate position. But when the as independence approached, the Hindu-Muslim riots came suddenly. I was a uh, not only was I fighting inequality at the age of eight, perfectly, if I may point out, uh, but uh, I found suddenly, you know, there were people killing each other they've never known on ground that the Hindu-Muslim identity became big. So I think the changing the terms of the debate, identity plays a huge part. The identity of neglected coal miners, neglected people who were in Britain or, or, or somewhere else could could have had a better life, but for this, but for that, and so on. And that became a major factor. Um, the part of the country I come from, namely Bengal, which had really had very little Hindu-Muslim rights in the past, um, suddenly it was full of that. And it came like a storm in 42, and went away like a storm in 47. By 52, Bangladesh, East Pakistanis, then, they were then called, were agitating about Bengali language. Identity has changed, that Hindu-Muslim division seems minor in comparison. Again, that debate is coming back as there are some attempts to deal, um, to deflect the debate about what's not going on. I think the issue of identity is really central to changing the terms of the debate. And it's really central for us to understand that the way people battle um, uh, inequality, they resist uh, big changes in inequality, is not to have it discussed. The moment it's discussed, and that's what happened with the manifesto that the, that the Conservative Party launched, suddenly, I mean, the critique that these two guys were to leave was to, not that they misrepresented Tory policy, but that they spoke about it. <laughs> so that suddenly it was a discussable item that there going to be uh, 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 dementia attacks, or whatever they're called, and the houses may be occupied by others, uh, and so on. And so it, 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 it's, it's, the, it's the clarity of the presentation which you don't want. Eh? I mean, these two guys really made an electoral mistake, because these are things you don't want to discuss if you want to win an election. Uh, and, the, and that became a big thing, and then the debate changed. I think if Macron's success is mainly to change the terms of the debate back again from where Marine Le Pen had presented it to be. I think that's the battle that's going on across the world right now. I think I can say a few things about South Africa and elsewhere too. Um, having said that, this is... Um, uh, relatively easy point, I think, because the identity battles have been um, going on for a very long time, and uh, they, I mean, this happened in, uh, in the context of, say, Ireland. Uh, the, um, uh, the changing the debate from imperial failure, and basically it's not an empire, but it is, um, to uh, the nature of the Irish culture, uh, um, um, uh, going back even to Spence and Fairy Queen. Uh, uh, Mr. Trevelyan, person in charge of the Treasury at the time of the um, Irish famine, uh, and sad to say, a Trinity product, 
Trinity College for that, uh, had to, uh, did, um, did manage to say that primary cause of the, or not primary, but the main cause of the starvation in Ireland is the culinary art of the Irish country woman doesn't exceed the boiling of a potato. <laughs> now that racist statement sounds offensive, on the other hand it's an explanation and it takes you away from what London is doing in dealing with a, a famine situation. So I think this is the old trick of changing the terms of the debate and one reason why this is a really important subject is while we, on one side we have to get the terms right, on the other side we have to resist being taken away from really interesting things we are discussing. Now, there are complex problems, and I would end by uh, just referring to one, and it's a subject. A lot of people among my friends, uh, like uh, uh, Jeremy Corbyn's uh, approach, uh, uh, I, I could discuss that, but I'm not going to discuss that right now. <laughs> but one of the things they say, well, I think this thing about school, uh, the abolishing tuition fees can't be right. Look at inequality. These are the relatively privileged. And certainly that's true. If you compare those who are going to colleges compared with the general population, they are the poor, uh, richer people. They are the more privileged. And yet, these people will come out of college and some of them will go and look for a job without any, any hindrance. Others will wonder how to pay back the loan which will restrict their choice, they restrict everything in their lives. Now, if you take the view which the French and the Italians and the Germans tend to take, that higher education is something in which the country has a stake, then, of course, the situation changes. And by the way, this is not... Uh, it's a big thing. We've been discussed again and again. Mark Twain discussed a lot. He did uh, discuss, did describe... Um, I think it's one of his more statements is a cauliflower is a cabbage with college education. <laughs> and he was praising college education in that. And certainly college education has provided an enormous amount of opportunity of protest. And it, it applies to Karl Marx, it applies to a lot of people. Uh, people don't know Karl Marx or the PhD thesis. I asked one of my students, several of my students, whether they knew, knew what it was. And they didn't. Well, the answer, of course, was that he wrote a PhD thesis on Epicurus and Democritus, like another PhD student at LFC. So that's a group. It might be interesting. It not only protests about capitalism, but also about Soviet tyranny. Um, Gorbachev was the first Soviet leader after Lenin who had gone to a college. I think it does make a difference, and you have to view the whole issue of tuition bearing in mind what the purpose of higher education is and what are the comparable groups that you have to look at, uh, you know, students coming out, and I, I was in this position of, uh, of, of, being, um, of heading a college and saw my students coming out, and very brilliant students, but different types of eyebrows, some ones with rather wide eyebrows and others not so. And all these are issues that we have to discuss. So the terms of the debate, what kind of identity and so on, are major issues that we have to concern. And I'm really very grateful to the organizers. I see one of them sitting here uh, for 
having got us into this, and I look forward to this discussion. Thank you. No, no, I, I don't need any help. My legs freeze when I stand at any point. <laughs> Usually people jump up and think that I'm having a heart attack, which I'm not. <laughs> You've got to keep fighting inequality. We can't. We've got to look after you. <laughs> the fight continues. Okay, so I was just going to kick off. Are these working? At the back, yeah. Are they work? Not quite. Need it closer. Ooh, is that same? Okay. So I was just going to kick off with um, a couple of questions. Um, actually, they were going to be different questions, but in terms of, of what you spoke about there, I'm going to I'm going to address the same question to all of you because what you talked about was directing attention. Who do we direct attention to? Who do we think our audience is, and how do we do it? So that's the general question that I want to kick off with, because um, you have a presumed audience and you said you were directing it in a specific way. But I'm also intrigued because the big competition in uh, digital companies is to actually completely steer attention through eyeball neurology research to make us focus on very particular things. So I wondered how social media which is really based on echo chambers and we know all that, and really trying to direct our attention, actually influences how we can set the terms of the debate. Because what you're, you're charting is this very long history of making lots of very important things both invisible or generating distraction. And how do you, I think this is one of the hardest things when you're mobilising, and you've done lots of it, uh, mobilising and campaigning, how do you, you know, actually counteract all that, those attempts to distract you all the time? So it's about attention, distraction, and the medium through which we set the terms of the debate that I'd like you all to, to address, if you, <laughs> if you wish. Should I start with you, Jim? I don't think we can underestimate, I don't think there's any way that you can underestimate the significance of, the, of technology and changes and social media. Um, I think on a, on a couple fronts. One, I think the pace and the metabolism of the media cycle itself has accelerated to a point that I don't think any of us could have imagined 10 or 20 years ago. The second thing is I think the behavior patterns of news consumption have also fundamentally shifted and been shattered. Somewhere upwards of 70% of the point of origin of news consumption starts on Facebook in the world. Um, so that's a very significant um, uh, um, point of uh, data. Um, and I do firmly believe that in the 21st century, the most important commodity is the human attention span. Yeah. Yeah. Um, They're fighting for it, Exactly, exactly. And, and everyone it. fights for the human attention span, yeah. including people that are working for social change. So yeah. I think we have to not be afraid of technology. I think we have to leverage it as much as possible. Um, there are increasingly more available tools, big data tools, for instance, 
there is a tool that corporations, many, tool, many tools um, that corporations use for what they call brand management. And that is they are listening all the time on Twitter, on Facebook, in message boards for what people are saying when a board member of Uber says something that is casually patriarchal. They want to know what Chinese people are saying about it and what Indian people are saying about it because it affects how Uber operates as a business model. Those tools are now beginning to have public, uh, have kind of nonprofit social change facing applications. And we are spending some time to think about how do you make these tools that are very powerful and typically available to the private sector more accessible to uh, folks um, that are working on social change. And I often think, and maybe this is an offer for the next class of LSE fellows, that we need an update on how uh, worldview is created. If uh, Benjamin's essay, you know, Art in the Age of Its Mechanical Reproduction, was so important, we need uh, research and an essay that talks about and analyzes ideology in the age of Instagram. Uh, and how tr- ideas travel and take hold in people's minds. Uh, and I think that's an incredibly important next frontier. Great, thank you. Great answer. Katie, should I go to you next? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll, t- I'll, I'll, I'll pick up on the, the technology, the social media point. Uh, maybe what I'm going to say is some element of wishful thinking because notwithstanding the social, you know, the social applications, we're never going to be able to outgun people with the huge amount of money behind these algorithms behind this, spending behind the technology. Um, so, so, so in the face of that, I like to believe that there are, uh, that, that there are still some ways around that. And, and I think um, and I think, I think it stands to reason that there, there are. So, so take Oxfam's work. <clears throat> you know, we uh, and the and the sort of share graphics I was showing you, the bus, the the, the um, golf buggy, etc. I think what's powerful of those is is not the moment that you see it and go ooh and and, and share it. It's that it sticks in your head and you say it to your friends later. You, it's it's a gift to you to be able to express your values in 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 a in a pithy way down at the pub. It's something that you remember to put in your speeches if you're going to say something about that. It has some social currency offline, um, that, which is really valuable. And, and I think there's a huge amount of excitement about, and, and quite rightly, a huge amount of excitement about how much social media plays in elections. But, you know, it's, um, it, it, it's the parties that are mobilising people on the street, that are having people that you trust and care about tell you how they're going to vote, how they feel about those things. Those things still, you know, have a huge amount of... Um, um, amount of uh, resonance, um, uh, yeah. And then, I mean, in terms of the um, the attention and distraction, I suppose I'll just go, go back to the um, Davos moment, which is essentially a hijacking of a media moment that's supposed to be about the elites or, or for the elites to make it to make it about the elites. So, you know, choosing choosing your moment in a very busy mm-hmm. news cycle. Uh, can make something take off at a time that is, um, you know, perhaps counterintuitive as well. Yeah, yeah. So kind of keep building warnings into when we do it as well. Mm. Now, would you like to address it in terms of you? You referenced a lot of different national initiatives over distraction. Yeah, well, uh, on the technology yeah. issue. Um, Microphone, okay. Am I all right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. 
Oh, microphone, microphone, microphone. I thought I had something. Yeah, I, I have something, yeah. Have I got yeah. something or not? You do. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I know normally it put on a tie. <laughs> and uh, it gave me a first understanding after about decades in, in Britain that the white people wear tie, that you need them to put their microphone. Microphones uh, always. But uh, I hope this works. They said it's good. <laughs> um, I don't take the why I don't even take the view that we we can't match this. Uh, I think there is a premature pessimism of mm-hmm. a kind that didn't, and I'm really using a charged analogy, which didn't deter the Vietnamese mm-hmm. when they were fighting the Americans. Mm-hmm. There was no way they could have matched this. Mm-hmm. But they were able to organize, and they were able to use some of the technology mm-hmm. that the Americans were using. Um, I think uh, the, what happened, and I, I think the attitude of fearing, and Katie, I admire your work very much, and, uh, and I've followed you, and since I had Auckland connection, I follow it with particular interest. But I disagree with you. I don't think, I, I think the attitude of fearing that we can't match it would be bad. We can match it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a question of not letting them use the media. And now, that's what happened in India. I know, even after this talk, if I talked a little bit more about cows, it will be even more. Mm-hmm. There will be, I will face about four to five hundred attacks in the morning. Wow. Yeah. And they come in, they're all organized, they're different A, B, C, A says he's a kind of idiot, and he's not well known for his words, B, he hates his country and he's always talking bad things about India, then see and so on. Yeah. And I think there's an algorithm whereby people <laughs> are ordered to send out these letters. And, uh, you know, I feel very disappointed when I find that there's only 20 letters. My God, that's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> that I don't think people were listening. Um, so I think... Uh, but they have captured it. There's no question that, that the Hindu extremists uh, 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 have absolutely captured the fish. Uh, and uh, all the others who go on complaining about it ought to do something positive about it. <laughs> but they don't seem to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think they, if there's a paralysis that's hit the opposition in India, mm-hmm. I think this is part of it, not to be able to use technology. In a, in a way, I come back to Macron again. Uh, who would have guessed that you could, he could have done that? Yeah. Uh, and, and in that, technology did play a part. Mm-hmm. You could, could we get, get heard. And I think similarly, actually, I would say of the three countries I spend my life one-third, one-third, one-third in, namely India, uh, UK, and USA, I think at the moment USA, I'll give a higher mark to being on alert about this. The, the battle has been engaged much more Fully, I think the first, this election was the first time that I saw something like that happening in Britain. Mm. But, uh, you know, we have to see to what extent, because the election was a very confused time, to see to what extent it goes on, and Britain has a long tradition. I mean, I couldn't understand, for example, say, Brexit. Mm. I mean, this is a country... I, when I was a college student in Calcutta, I was reading John Stuart Mill, learned that Britain doesn't 
take decisions by referendum of plebiscite. It's a representative <laughs> government. It's because they may do it and then it goes to the parliament. What did the parliament do? Mother of all parliaments, we are told. The parliamentarian said, now that Britain has already decided, we are not going to disturb that. And that applies even to the leader of the opposition, I might say. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a question of whether it's soft or yeah. hard. And I absolutely love the Tory, uh, Scottish Tory's introduction of the term open Brexit. I'm trying to figure out what that is. <laughs> but uh, I, love, I love, the, love the sound of it. Uh, and so, uh, the, but it's a country with a tradition of debate. What happened to the debate? I mean, the debate has now become nothing. Mm -hmm. And um, if my friend, I spent two weeks in, in Italy and one week in, in, in France in the last one, if my friends are completely puzzled as to what happened mm -hmm. to the erstwhile British nation, mm -hmm. uh, this question <laughs> does arise as a, as a major issue. And of course, in India, the battle is much worse. And, uh, the, the leading party Congress, uh, you know, the people discuss do they have a great leader or not. But the question is, do they have the, the method and the tactics and the determination mm -hmm. and the confidence mm -hmm. not to feel that we are overwhelmed? Mm -hmm. They're not overwhelmed. You're overwhelmed to the extent you think you're overwhelmed. I think that's really very important. So I don't think the, it's like, you know, I've spent also some time debating things, getting debate off things, like in, 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 in economic, uh, the debate went off on a tangent as to whether mathematics is a good thing or a bad thing. So it's got nothing to do with it. I mean, sometimes some kind of math is very, very useful, other kinds of math are not very useful. It depends on what it is. Now, if you concentrate on getting math, getting math out of economic, or concentrate on the mathematical Brahminism, that unless it's a mathematical argument is not a favorite argument, then you're going absolutely nowhere. So you have to get that out. That is not what the debate is about. And there's so many known issues that mm. have been mm. imposed on us, mm. and it's continuing, uh, it's in fact, effective, continues today. Uh, I think it's, um, it's something where uh, a, a announcement that we are we win business, we want to uh, pursue, and we're not afraid. So and keeping in, and, to an agenda. Yeah, and inequality is, mm. I mean, it's, we have the, the way battle is easier because inequality is something which human beings do not like, uh, except unless there is a good cause given for it. Mm. And, and, and so we have the, we're the favorite side. I don't play enough chess here. We are the white, not black, in, the, in, <laughs> in this game. Okay, well, on that point, I'm going to open it out. We have got half an hour for uh, lots of debate. Um, I did wonder, before I do so, getting, getting the mics ready, did either of you have questions for each other? Mm, questions for While each the mics other. are getting ready to, to roll. That is true. Yep. So division. <laughs> <laughs> I just think you could have uh, yeah, any questions for each other to ask. Well, I, I mean, mm. I'm going to do the terrible thing of um, a kind of semi-rhetorical question because I was thinking about the example that I offered around decriminalization of marijuana and, and tonight and the 
incredibly useful concept that uh, Professor Sun has developed around negative and positive freedom and the kind of trade-offs that it wasn't a coincidence that these campaigns started in the West and the U.S. where there's a strong libertarian impulse. And it was framed as free, it was a classic negative freedom, freedom from government interference of how you, what you choose to do. And I would actually argue that marriage equality and marriage campaigns, which have also been incredibly important and historic, have also made some hard trade-offs because they have also often framed around negative freedom freedom from government interference into who you choose to love, uh, which is why I think, uh, you know, wage discrimination is a different and harder campaign in some ways than marriage equality. So I offer that, given the company, um, any thoughts on uh, how we do this work that makes these trade-offs and really, um, you know, relies on kind of pre-existing notions of freedom from government interference, which we know can also hinder us in many ways. Yeah. I, I'm not sure that's false. Uh, I'm, misusing, I'm misusing your concept. No, no, no you're not misusing. <laughs> I mean, that's the way some of the things I've tried to say have been interpreted, but it's not, it's not just a distinction between freedom to and freedom from, mm-hmm. because, uh, uh, you know, freedom from hunger is a pretty good thing to think about. Sure. Freedom from medical neglect is, is a very big thing. So, so the English language or any language has enough versatility to go between that. But it's mainly seeing what human beings can do, do uh, you know, freedom in the, mm. in the sense where the long tradition, we have Aristotle, we have Adam Smith, we have Condorcet, we have Karl Marx, mm. there's a long history mm. of that. So uh, to to look at that, and I agree that the issue even on things like marijuana falls in that category. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, uh, I would say that the, um, uh, these are additional debates, like the issue of attribution fees. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that that's an easy answer, but I, I, what I was saying about attribution fees is to say that, look, these are more privileged than others, mm-hmm. and therefore they must pay for it. Mm-hmm. That's not an adequate answer. You have to actually take on the comparable group and see whether you're making the right decision. I mean, there's something to debate about that. So uh, I think uh, there's a whole lot of uh, other uh, debates uh, of, the, of that kind we have to do. I won't say we haven't talked about climate, etc. That's an inequality issue mm-hmm. too, mm-hmm. in okay. some sense about yeah. the present generation and the future. But that's interesting in terms of narrative, because over 50% of climate change debates Uh, on the internet are written by bots that are machine learning human speech to uh, have a debate with each other. So, you know, what what happens to narrative when we're at that level of discussion? Um, That's what what I wonder. They've been trained to actually recognise and respond to each other with lots of different information. But that's 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 a matter for another debate, really, but it is what does happen to narrative when machine learning bots are actually constructing it to fight with each other. We think they're real. You can track them quite easily. So I will, on that point, <laughs> I, I will open the questions out to the audience. Um, I'll take three at a time because I suspect there's going to be um, quite a few. So keep their hands up. If people keep your hands up and then I can, will you notice? 
Yes. Yeah. So there was one right up there straight away, but there's a few over here. So if we go over here first, then we'll go. So you don't need to keep your hand up forever on. There's a group here, one there, and one there. So if we, can you take these ones over here first? Yeah. Yeah. Can you yeah. say who you are as well, please? Because we are recording. Sure. I'm Robert. And uh, I'm glad that I'm starting the questions because uh, I want to ask um, the fundamental question, should we tackle inequality? Because uh, we are different. Some people are smarter, some people yeah, study an LSE, and some people are Uber drivers. So, uh, and, the second, and following that, uh, should we rephrase the problem as should we tackle actually extreme poverty? And inequality may be something innate to our society. Okay, so that's one question. We'll, we'll get three at a time and then I'll, okay. I'll pass it over. Over there. So, should we tackle inequality? Yeah, yeah, I, I got the question. Yeah. Hi, um, Peter Kumar. So, um, if fear is hard, hardwired into our brain, into our emotional response into our memory formation in terms of our amygdala or however it actually works but if that's like a innate response uh, and fairness might be a subsidiary of fear and that unfairness might occur to us are we pre-programmed to respond to messages of fear as opposed to messages of fairness there was another one to write down here Hi, I'm Aaron Jay my question is um, also more on, on the financial inequality and, and extreme poverty. So since uh, so the Oxfam figures are fantastic, and we've used that a lot in financial inclusion, but if you look at just the UK and since the global financial crisis, they, there's some research done that the 1% have doubled their wealth in the last eight years, whereas uh, everyone else has uh, stayed flat or, in real terms, poorer. Like, what actually needs to happen for um, you know, this change to come about? So the London riots was just sort of a preview of, uh, or, or you know, like a trailer of a movie that we're yet to see. Or like what, what actually needs to happen? Like why isn't this change, like why are we going, we, we're talking about solving the problem, but actually we're going in the opposite direction. Okay, now all questions are very huge. Uh, <laughs> and not specifically on narrative. So I would ask you, if it's all possible, <laughs> which is really, really hard, to think about narrative in answering the question, because should we tackle inequality is almost... We could be here for days, weeks. Um, so we'll try and keep it specific and keep it to how narrative will work. Can we start? Would you like to start this time and work for that one? I wouldn't like to, but... <laughs> <laughs> when you take up the challenge. Okay. Uh, tackle. Uh, I think there are two points here. One is um, whether there is a reason to take up inequality as in, as in some kind of adversity. That's part of the question. And your other question is, why not poverty? I think that's what you ended. You, you're very brief on that last two sentences where that was poverty. But the first one, I think I'd say that, yes, I mean, we could spend some time discussing why that is the case. Um, 
I think probably the best thing to read, if you are interested in it, is Bernard Williams, uh, about 40 years ago. Uh, it's an essay called Equality. So, such Bernard Williams <laughs> Equality. I think it's a very good essay. Um, I think, you know, one way of thinking of it, there the two kids, one gets a large slice of the pie, another gets a small. Uh, there's a reason to ask why. But if both of them got exactly the same size, to say, well, why? Uh, it doesn't seem as telling a question to ask uh, when people have other things to do as to why is it that they're getting equal fares from the cake. And I think there is a distinction there, which I think we notice, and I, I may or may not be right, that like Chomsky's syntax there, uh, in a, a kind of uh, a negative attention, a, a kind of dislike of inequality is fairly uh, well ingrained in our thinking until we find an explanation. That's of course what Katie was going towards. The, um, the other issue, the poverty issue, is that I don't really think you can take out this, uh, uh, dissociate this issue. I think the best discussion of that is a, uh, a man a long time ago called Adam Smith, uh, 1776, Belt of Nations, where he discusses um, poverty in relatively rich societies. And he says, you know, our poverty is, and this is where the the, uh, the point that uh, you were trying to make about Jim uh, Kinder, that about the um, um, uh, um, different ways of thinking about inequality comes in. He was thinking about the kind of life we can lead. Mm-hmm. And he said that if you're in a rich country and you are, you're poor, relatively speaking, compared with others in that society, but you are rich compared with people in poorer societies. Uh, and what Smith says that the trouble is that the, the established conventions in the society, what kind of clothes you have to wear, what you have to uh, uh, have access to in order to participate in public discussion, has changed. If you, I mean, he, this is not an example. His example, if you are in New York and your kid uh, doesn't have an opportunity to look at television uh, or, or even cable, uh, then uh, the child is deprived. Deprived is poor. Child is poor because the child cannot take part in public discussion in the school. Smith's example was that you need a linen shirt and leather shoes to be able to appear in public. I think leather shoes have gone away, but. Uh, uh, and linen shirt too, probably. <laughs> I don't believe it. A linen. But he said that that amount of resource you need, and if you are unequal, if you are relatively poor in a rich society, you, that relative deprivation leads to absolute deprivation of things that everyone in the world wants, namely to take part in the life of the community, appear in public without shame, to take part in public reasoning. Um, Peter Townsend spent a lot of time discussing that. I call with him a little, little for not giving credit to Adam Smith, who discussed that point about 200 years earlier, quite extensively. But Peter Townsend has very good examples of that. So I would say 
you cannot differentiate the poverty and inequality uh, issues for the reason that we have known for a couple of hundred years. Can I pass the other two to you two? Yeah, the third one I'll leave to. I think there are two more, yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> One at a time, yeah. Well, well Robert, I won't, I won't repeat that because you don't need an answer after that. Uh, you've, been, you've been told by a Nobel Prize winning economist, so... <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot to add. Um, uh, in terms of fear, it's a, it's a really good... You know, and this is getting us back to narratives. I think we have to choose not to, personally. Um, I think... And I think this has been coming through in, in what we've been saying today, that the... the the methods you choose to campaign by are important and, and, and the ends don't justify the means or, or uh, you know, in, in doing that. So I think you do have to create you know, positive values are, are like a muscle. You have to stretch them, you have to use them, you have to create them in, in the activity of what you're doing. A great example, I would say, is... Um, uh, the, the, the great get-together organised to mark the anniversary of the murder of Joe Cox. That's not fundraising for anything. That's got no political message. That is just creating an activity of getting together across communities for its own sake as a campaigning uh, action or as a message of solidarity. Uh, and, and the how is as, is as important as, as what it's for. Um, on what will it take people to, to wake up? I mean, I think, and, and realise, yeah... Um, we don't need the 1%. I think um, uh, I, I would say a, a couple of things. I think as I was talking about, there's a need to char- challenge some of the, the, the ways, even in you know, the nightly news broadcasts, we hear about the, the economy or we hear about co- rising corporate profits as, as solely a, a good news story rather than starting to analyse sort of who that's working for. But I think the other thing is you can see it Happening because the, because uh, the um, and this slightly goes to your, your question, Robert. The, the reasons that um, you know we've had that wealth, well, arguably it's the falling corporate tax rate. Arguably it's uh, you know other d- political decisions made to allow their capital to grow, not cracking down on tax havens. Those things are directly depleting the amount of money for public resources leading to austerity, and it's this anti-austerity backlash that we're seeing in communities around the country now. So, um, yeah, I, 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 you may start to be happening. Chief? I don't need to add You're okay. Yeah. I was going to say austerity. I think we saw last week that we did get a response to, to people getting really fed up with what had happened to them. So austerity is key. Okay, can we go over to the back there? You had your hand up for a long while. Uh, my name is Sandy Balfour. Uh, thank you very much for the presentations. I thought they were very interesting. Katie has just partly answered the question I was about to ask, but I'll put this, I think, therefore, to G, which is you were describing, and from all three speakers, we've heard examples of narratives uh, which were characterized by their uh, passing acquaintance with the truth. So whether it's the Brexit lies or whether it's the poverty of the worldview that comes out of Davos or whether it's the shameful mendacity of the example you gave of the equivalence between blackness and poverty being used to campaign against government in general. And so my question is, and it is about narrative, is in order to do do good, does the alternative narrative have to be true? Mm. (laughs) 
Should we answer that one <laughs> before taking two more? Because that's a very, very interesting one. That uh, let's hear. Gee, should we start with you? Oh, yeah, it's super easy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would. I mean, this is a a version of uh, I think a question that I get often around. Uh, is your project and is your ambition to essentially create a propaganda machine or, or make people better at propaganda? And, and I here in this case would draw from um, the work of George Lakoff, who, essentially, who argues that um, human beings are biconceptual, and I would actually argue multiconceptual in the sense that we hold multiple conflicting ideas to be true in our minds at all times. And the work of narrative and cognitive linguists is to actually kind of unlock uh, and activate our better angels. Uh, And in some ways, um, it's not... um, uh, And understanding kind of to the question about fear, kind of what the emotional truths are as well and kind of how you uh, use these things to kind of unlock, um, you know, the better angels in people, I think is both the question of language, but also a question of somatics uh, in terms of the actual physical body as well. Um, I'll cite uh, one study uh, at the University of Michigan. They did a longitudinal study of people who believed um, and kept uh, believing uh, that many years after 9-11 in the U.S. that um, Saddam Hussein was connected to 9-11. And uh, they tried the kind of tried and true um, classic kind of liberal impulse to inundate these folks with facts. Um, And uh, what they found was that it had no effect on their existing beliefs. It just says something about our our, uh, aspiration of enlightenment rationalism. Um, But some of the things that did actually change and had some uh, significant um, measurable shift in how people... Uh, created uh, uh, their opinions and sense of truth was preceding those facts with a compliment. As simple as shifting the emotional landscape of a human being Mm -hmm. can actually create more amenability to alternative points of view uh, and to put yourself not in a mode of confrontation or uh, myth-busting is actually really important to the work. Uh, So it's not just about language, and language is incredibly important, Brain science is important, but it's also about the kind of nature of how human beings and our emotional landscapes. Uh, anybody else? What I'm going to do, I have, I've got six men with their hands up at the moment, but I'd like <laughs> to take a question from a woman, so may we go to you first. <laughs> and then I will come to you. I have got you in order, so you will be next. I have, you've had your hand up for a long time, and then I'll come to you at the top. Yeah. Um, thank you very much. Um, with regards to inequality, oh sorry, my name is Lillian Nandy. So, with regards to inequality, um, I think there's a we think of the elite forming the narrative and having the greatest influence, or perhaps all of the influence through their narrative. But for want of a better word, I wonder if the non-elite also um, unwittingly contribute to inequality by actually buying in to those messages. After all, there are so many of them and, you know, there are fewer of the elite. So how can you sort of counteract the, uh, the will of so many people can, can, can unless I, they're not buying into it? Can I clarification? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the word elite. Yeah. It's used, of course, now like ruling group. 
and quite often, I mean, elite used to be a lot of bright and, and enlightened and knew something, where now often military rulers who can't spell and can't add or multiply are described as elite <laughs> on grounds that they rule the country. Do you mean elite in the latter sense or the, in the I proper meant, sense? I meant r- elite as in the ruling class, those in ruling power class. and government. They don't call them elite. Yeah. The rulers, yeah. Yeah. Uh. So, <laughs> I mean, or, so do the non-elite also unwittingly contribute to inequality by buying into the messages or is, not, is that not the right way of thinking about things? Okay, we'll take, we'll take the ruling class ideology question, but we'll, the, the person next to you, if you could just pass the microphone, but then we do have to go right to the back after that, so we'll take three in a, three in a go. Thank you. My name is Moody, a high school student, and my question for um, the honourable speakers is um, on climate change, which Professor Sang just briefly mentioned. Um, so how do you see Trump's recent decision to quit the Paris Climate Convention and would that add to the global uh, inequality in the sense that the U.S. has been a huge energy-consuming body and it can now ignore international restrictions on environmental protection? And um, in the case of uh, energy-consuming, do you think that um, emerging national economies such as India and China should be given a tighter restriction on environmental indicator, um, for example, carbon emission levels, or they should have a um, looser restriction on those indicators? And we, 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 we're doing a session on narratives. We're not going to go into the detail of climate change at the moment. So I'll cut you off there, can't? Because there's so many people waiting to speak. Can we go straight to the back where you've been waiting for a very, very long time? Society precluded um, debate, or has it defeated itself um, by substituting uh, feeling uh, for evidence? Uh, Jim, or G. Kim, said that there were uh, currents um, as a trend, and we've had since um, the Enlightenment rationalism and using evidence for that, um, has um, rationalism lost? What, what is a suitable substitute, if so, and is rational narrative possible at all? Great. Can we take one more from the back? Because you you've had your hand up for long, and then we'll do, do them all. I can. I'd like, if I may, to come back to the um, assertion that Uh, we have a natural dislike for inequality. Um, As I uh, heard the debate so far, uh, we've been talking about inequality in terms of inequality in outcomes. Um, But there are inequalities in the mechanisms and who controls those mechanisms that lead to such outcomes. Now, such mechanisms and control of them uh, would often be described as inequalities of power. And I'm using power as defined by Morris and uh, Stephen Lukes as well, both in terms of the nature of power and the exercise of power. Now, 
what I, my question is focusing on whether in changing, seeking to change the narrative, one must also seek to change the terms by which the, uh, the, the power framework already sets, if you like, those who have greater uh, access to resources which can be used to dictate the terms of the debate and we have seen many examples of that. Uh, there's one final example I want to give, and that's from the book by uh, Robert Michel's Political Parties, 1915, in which he uh, suggests an iron law of oligarchy where too often um, the majority are grateful to uh, abrogate or delegate, uh, depending on what point of view you have, to uh, a tiny number of people, not only the exercise of power, but later the consolidation of that power. And so we have, if you like, a different dimension other than in unequal outcomes in very important substantive areas. Okay, I'm going to take those questions together because two of them are actually about ruling class ideology almost. Um, and then we have climate change, which could easily fit into that and be segued in, um, and rationalism, which forms part of it as well. Not quite easily narrative, but would you... Katie, would you like to start this time? Okay, I, I get to pick. Well, well, I'll say one thing on... Um, Climate change is absolutely an inequality issue. 90% of global emissions come from the top 10% of, of, of people, um, and so it's one of the great inequities of our time. The, to bring it back to narratives, Bev, I'd just say yeah. absolutely disastrous for Trump to leave the climate change, but um, what a gift he's done in uniting everybody uh, in... Uh, suddenly learning what the Paris Climate Change Convention is, how much they suddenly love it and, um, and hate him for leaving. So it's an example of, uh, certainly an example of amplifying someone else's frame. Um, the only thing I'll say on, on equalities of, of, of power, um, uh, people don't inherently want complete equality. I think that's not what any of us are saying. People, people hate unfairness and people hate the unfairness inherent in inequality. Um, but what we do find in our research all around the world, north and south, is that everyone thinks that the elites are up to something, whether they're economic elites or, 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 or political elites, or, <laughs> or the ruling, leaders, yeah. ruling classes, <laughs> that they are up to something. So, so the slide I showed on what would people like to campaign about most people it's corruption of government and uh rich people having too much say over uh, the economic system so to come back to your argument i think i think um uh, uh there, there is quite an awareness amongst non-ruling classes that um, that they want to have more voice want to have more say okay would you like to comment on that um yeah there's a um, on the power issue that's a that is in, indirectly, as you say, a ruling class question has come up. Um, I think the, um, um, there's an interesting remark that I think uh, attributed to Anna and Bevan, I think Michael Foote does anyway, uh, to say that um, uh, the, uh, the point about having power is to be able to give it away. Uh, the argument here is this, that if you have the power and give it away, you're not exercising it, but you know that other people don't have power yeah. on you. Steve Vickle said something very like that in one of his statements, 
that it's not that I want far, I don't want other people to have far over my life and, and the life of people similarly placed. So I think in the case of power, inequality is a big issue. Uh, and, and so it's quite right. And I'm not sure where you came around there because there were different arguments in your presentation. No, I know where you're sitting, but I didn't know where, uh, whether you regard inequality of power is a concern. I think it's a concern. But it's very important to recognize inequality has so many aspects. I was in the privilege to be here in the session at 2 o'clock when uh, uh, Ruth Lister and others were speaking about uh, the psychosocial inequalities and so on. These are very important issues too. And you're not going to capture them in all. You know, power, health, education, and, and all kinds of things. But we don't have to. The inequality has many dimensions. And, uh, and there is, unlike an attempt uh, which uh, somehow uh, economists uh, often fall for, namely whenever you see multiple things to get one index out of that. Uh, I think human beings are able to understand more than one variable at the same time. Let's hope so. Uh, Jade, you want to Sure, just uh, a couple kind of wandering thoughts that I'll try to tie together on the question of feeling versus evidence. Um, I don't think narrative work is new, actually, and I don't think rationalism ever won. Um, I think that uh, stories have uh, uh, been key to human beings making meaning and forming communities since the creation or the, since the establishment of Homo sapiens. And I think there's a great chapter in the book Sapiens exactly to this point about the key role of stories and storytelling and narratives ultimately as being kind of fundamental to human mean, meaning making. So I don't think there's anything new about this. I mean, the complexity certain, certainly upticks today. Um, <laughs> One thing that I will say about power is, I think, to the question here, I think you hit something really on its head uh, and that we're wrestling with at the Narrative Initiative. I think there are two dimensions of narrative power. One is definitional. One renders subjects invisible by being able to define a group of people, a country, a gender, what have you. But I think there is a, another form of narrative power that is a reproductive power where it is able to have its subjects reproduce its ideas and render itself invisible as opposed to rendering subjects invisible. It's not dissimilar from the traditional uh, division uh, or the idea between force and consent in many ways. Um, but I think these are two key uh, uh, dimensions of narrative power, and I will offer one example. In the U.S., campaigns around economic equality, especially around minimum wage, are often uh, phrased around, if you work a full-time job, you should not have to rely on government assistance. And that is a message that has been, to many extents, been quite successful. But embedded within that is a reproduction of the narrative that government support is something you should avoid, that it's shameful. And to this question of fear, I think that's the kind of emotional truth here um, around the shame associated with uh, poverty or having government assistance is actually, to me, one of the greatest barriers to actually starting to solve it because it's, it's really kind of blocks people from even having the conversation about it. So I offer that as one example of the ways in which a narrative can uh, reemerge uh, in subjects who imagine themselves to be doing work on economic inequality but in some ways are reproducing deeper narratives that may set us back.
Okay, I'm going to take questions very, very quickly. We've got four already set up, and then that will, that's it, I'm afraid. We have to leave the room. <laughs> we can't stay in the room. So it was the two people right at the very back. Uh, yeah. I have a question about the implication of uh, studying the uh, concept of inequalities. I think it's a, a recurring theme uh, in many uh, LSE courses. Um, uh, do you think, like, if, if uh, newcomers to social policy or undergraduate students keep hearing this message that that is heavily socially constructed, these inequalities, and um, do you think there is a chance that they, they, that they might be thinking, thinking that they shifting the respons- responsibilities to something or to someone? And I guess my question is that how do we promote this kind of uh, this awareness and uh, without losing the motivation to... Right, that connects yeah, to the exactly. uh, question earlier. Just behind you, quickly. Um, my question for the panel is on the subject of, um, of um, a sense of identity. And I'd like to make two points for, uh, for the panel to comment on, please. One is that um, today, in the Republic of Ireland, uh, a new Prime Minister, Taoiseach, has been appointed, who is half Indian and half Irish, and Indian father, Irish mother, and um, I just feel it raises an interesting um, question, question of identity. question, quickly? And the other is the role of music in creating a sense of identity. I'm very aware that um, when Britain was very much playing the divide and rule game in India, um, Rabindranath Tagore, he was composing patriotic songs that brought the consciousness of the people together. One of them became the Bangladesh National Anthem, and one of them became the Indian National Anthem. So I just feel the subject of, in this very divided country, okay. I feel music could play a role in helping bring people together. <laughs> Can you just run down? <laughs> Sorry, you, you had your hand up for a long while, just to want to ask a question, yeah? And then over here. So we'll take these questions very, very quickly. Very quickly. Well, I'm yeah. not sure I have a question. Um, my name's Tony Shorex. I have, my claim to fame is I produce the, uh, the wealth distribution statistics that uh, Oxfam use, uh, together with my next-door neighbour here, Jim Davies. Um, there's a couple of things. One is... Uh, quickly. W- well, all right. <laughs> Quick, quickly is I'm, I'm sort of surprised that there's been no discussion about uh, policies here. And it seems to me that if you're looking at wealth inequality, one of the issues you've got to look at is that how it is that we've uh, created what seems to be a sort of grotesque uh, uh, um, uh, game in which uh, uh, some people are are winners these days. But unlike in the past, when you win, the fortunes that you win these days are so much bigger. And I don't see very much, when we talk about policies, they all seem to be on um, perhaps addressing the uh, post-tax inequality, but there's no discussion about perhaps addressing the pre-tax inequality. And what I'm thinking here is a lot of the fortunes that are made really depend on a system of copyrights and patent rights that we have in the world. And that if you look and see how it is that uh, the big (laughs) Uh, uh, Google and uh, Facebook and so on make their fortunes, it's largely because they rely on having these international agreements. 
So I'm, going to be... to have to, I'm sorry, I really right. am going to have to stop you because okay. we do have to <laughs> security. Right. We have to well, I'm just uh, making that suggestion. So, that was a very good point about IP law and copyright. Very good point. They were all incredibly good points, and we're not going to be able to answer them. Literally, we have to get out of the room. So, um, I'd just like to say, first of all, an enormous thanks to our speakers for coming. And then before, before we all run out, because we have to, um, I'd also like to say an absolutely enormous thanks to the people who've enabled this to happen, to the Inequalities Institute, to Billy, to John, to Mike, where's Lisa, to Rana, to all the helpers today. Have I got um, Neil, who's been amazing, to the people who've been filming it, and to all the people who've made this happen, including the security. So thank you very much.